Hello, you're listening to the podcast version of ACFM on Navara Media. Unfortunately, because of the way copyright works with the internet, the version you're listening to only has the conversation and discussion from the show. The music and archive material is only available in the version you can stream online. So really, you're only getting half the picture or seeing through a glass darkly or on a really weak dose. Why not head over to the Navarra Media website or our SoundCloud, where you can stream the whole thing in its glorious fullness. The link is also in the description of this podcast version too. But if you just want the chat, keep on listening. Hello, everyone. This is Matt, one of the editors of ACFM. Just popping up with a quick note to um, share with you that all of us here at the show feel understandably conflicted about releasing an episode on utopias given the current state of the country and the world due to the COVID-19 pandemic. It's fair to say that when we recorded this episode a few weeks ago, I don't think any of us had anticipated what was going to happen. We will be back with a special episode on the COVID-19 pandemic um, very soon. But in the meantime, we hope that this episode can provide you with some sort of relief in whatever state of isolation or lockdown you find yourself in. I would also say that the interview with Judy Thorne mentioned uh, within the show will be going online very soon as a separate microdose. And we really would encourage you to listen to that as well, because there's loads of good stuff in it. All of us here at the show hope you are um, keeping well and we send our love and solidarity to you wherever you may be. Okay, Nadia, take it away. So I want to ask each one of you guys, name three things in your utopia. Uh, You know, free time, fresh air and, and beauty. Is that too vague? No, no, I think that's perfectly good. Yeah, that free time, I... um limit on on necessary work basically so we have free time to do to pursue our own development fresh air is a great one you know and link to the countryside and what was your third one beauty oh yeah and beautiful cheeses that's my (laughs) (laughs) it's the theme that will not die i will i would i would have to be honest and say without without cheeses it couldn't without beauties it could not be a utopia (laughs) for me (laughs) if i can't eat cheese it's not my revolution yeah (laughs) i'm i'm gonna um let the side like the the acfm side down by saying i could live without dairy completely my utopia would have really good design and architecture um a good balance between private space and communal space. And the things I'd like to see in communal space are like eating, really important to me. Having the outside in, in terms of like really good lighting and greenery and plants and access to nature, not being like the countryside necessarily, but feeling like there are living plant life um, in the spaces that I had to live and work. Welcome to ACFM, the home of the weird left. I'm Nadia Idle, and I'm joined as usual by Keir Milburn. Hello. And Jeremy Gilbert. Hello. And today we're talking about utopias. So I'm interested in utopias because I'm interested in big thinking. I'm interested in kind of rising above uh, current organizing um, and political uh, struggles. I think it's important as a way of thinking. I think you can't do day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month work without kind of having a vision of what you want. And I'm also interested in the actual exercise of thinking, how would I, if I could have my ideal way of living, like day-to-day what would that look like? What sort of a space would I live in? How would I relate to other people? Um, where, where, how, you know, where would plants be? What would the architecture look like? What would my day look like? What would work look like? Um, and I think it's also through those visions that you build relationships with other people who you can best organize with to get to that future, in a sense. So um, because I was excited about this, 
one of the first things I did is I went to interview um, Judy Thorne, who's an old comrade of mine from Plan C. Um, and she has actually done uh, an entire PhD on utopias. So um, we had a, a two-hour chat, and I think we'll talk about a few of the things that um, she brought up there. So, yeah, that's my interest in the topic. There's also, I think, a... Um you know, a very specific conjunctural reason why we might want to talk about utopias, i.e. this is the second podcast we've recorded since the election. Um, and since the election, there definitely has been a closing in of what seems possible, right? Things are closing into the space of possibility. And like one of the one of the reasons you might want to talk about utopia is because it helps to break down what currently seems possible. Do you know what I mean? It's It helps us to to uh, denaturalize, you know, all of the, uh, the, uh, the way our, our present society is organized, you know, raises our horizons a little bit. So that might be a reason, you know, a very specific reason why we want to talk about utopias at this moment. Yeah, I think it's probably worth saying as well, actually, when we were first planning the podcast, like at one stage, I wanted, I wanted this to be the first topic. Uh, um, I wanted us to do something about utopianism because I thought... Because when I was getting interviewed a lot by journalists like that year and being asked, oh, what, what is Essie Corbynism? What is this on about? Like my, my most shortest, you know, like one sentence answer was, you know, it, it's an attempt to bring, you know, utopianism like into mainstream politics. And it's to also recover the lost utopian dimension of progressive politics. So I think it is... I don't think, I mean, really, Nadia sort of set out, I think, what, you know, to some extent what that means. But I think... It, I think it to me utopianism utopianism is a sort of spirit which can inform even quite you know moderate you know quote unquote moderate political programs as well as really radical ones uh, and it can be absent as well and in it, its in its presence is really important you know as a kind of animating sense of open of sort of open possibilities and openness to the possibilities of the future and a kind of willingness to accept that the, the limits of the present moment you know, might be transcendable and must be transcendable. The sort of classic utopian song is Imagine by John Lennon. Imagine there's no heaven Imagine there's no war. It's easy if you try, etc., and all that sort of stuff. And we know what Lenin said about the song. What did he? What did he say about the song? He said it's basically the Communist Manifesto, but because I sugarcoated it, you know, people accept it. <laughs> That's a great line. Um, I think we should start talking about like examples of yeah. utopia, both in reality and in fiction, because I think. You know, like, unless you know about... Well, I know about the Paris Commune. I don't know about very many others. But it's it's kind of like, if you first hear about the Paris Commune, you, you cannot believe it's real. Like, I just can't... But every time I hear a different thing about it, I cannot believe that this actually existed in history. And it changes my relationship with the present and with what I think is possible. It's 1871, and it's happening in Paris when the Prussians have seized Paris during the... Franco-Prussian war. And so because the French state is in crisis, uh, the, um, I mean, the, basically the sort of working class of, you know, the people of Paris, including a large working class element, form their own government. And it is basically a sort of democratic, you know, highly democratic, participatory, sort of federated government based on kind of neighbourhood councils and a sort of Paris council, I think. And, and it becomes this really important point of reference, both for the sort of anarchist and sort of uh, what become the communist strands of the workers' movement. So, you know, it's for you know, Lenin famously, like a couple of few months into the Russian Revolution, like I can't, it's in, in, in his diary or in a letter, it says, We've now lasted longer than the commune. And that was the big thing. And it was seen as the first example of a government that had significant working class. Elements, and then it be becomes this reference point. Um, it'd be interesting to think about the afterlives of of the Paris Commune, because like one of the things was just ah, what how how many tens of thousands of people were massacred after the Paris Commune. Like something like thirty thousand people just get killed, lined up and shot in the street. You know, they basically it was such a massive threat they had to physically wipe out just about everyone who was there. 
but like and the people who escape, there's there's all you, you you like the people who escape escape all around the world, and they, you know you have like when you when you look at like different movements etc. You find like you know veterans of the communards being in the middle of it. Do you know what I mean? That experience had been so out of out of of the rest of history in some ways that like you know people couldn't go back to normal lives either because they were dead or they just went off and found struggles all around all around the world. You know what I mean? But are there other big examples like the Paris Commune? People often point to like Barcelona in, you know, 1936 or something during the Spanish Civil War. Uh, George Orwell's homage to Catalonia is like, you know, him wandering around Barcelona. He's saying it's the first time I've been in this city where the working class is in the saddle, basically. And, you know, his, his mind is completely blown. It doesn't last very long because the, the fascists come in and defeat the, uh, defeat the, the Republicans. But there's lots of examples. So people people also point to things that, like so. The Zapatistas in the 1990s, the Zapatistas co- communities in, which was which is in um, Chiapas, which is a region sort of region well, they're in still Mexico. There. It's just people, they've just yeah. stopped being news. But yeah, could, yeah, we, no, could we just be, before you go on, Keir, So apart from the working, or well, saying the working class being in the saddle, which doesn't necessarily sound utopic. To me, it sounds like it's politically pretty good, but it doesn't necessarily make it utopic. Like, what what are the other aspects of... Do you know anything else about, like, 1930s Barcelona or what Orwell said? Well, yeah, so Spain was one of the only places where, like, anarcho-syndicalism was, like, was like the dominant the dominant form of the workers' movement in, in Spain for particular reasons. Um, so, like, yeah, there was, it was, you know... Um, uh, the the this, the unions the syndical the syndicates the unions ran everything, but like what what Orwell starts going on about is just like how all of a sudden it just like has an effect on the way people relate to each other. Um, so basically, wait, waiters stop treating you with like <laughs> obsequiousness and stuff like that, and all these sorts of things. Do you know? Yeah, I mean that's the sort of stuff that that I find really interesting. It's like. Like it's not like because the unions running everything could mean like fairer wages for workers and yeah, like better structures, but it could still be shit experientially. I mean, what that kind of Spanish anarchism usually means in practice is what we would we would sort of recognise as highly federated, highly devolved forms of democracy. So it's basically participatory democracy. Everything is run by councils of kind of local neighbourhoods or workplaces. You know, people at the top of any kind of decision making structure are always accountable you know, routinely accountable to everybody at the bottom. It's that sort of thing. It's that sort of mode of organisation. Um, you know, it's sort of, you know... I mean, it's sort of, you know... Uh, I mean, anarchy, the word anarchism in English is always sort of problematic because it conjures up, and for some, a lot of people it does mean just this idea that uh, there's no state, there's no authority, there's no... But it'd be more accurate. I mean, in some way, it'd be more accurate to call it sort of radical democracy in a way, I think. So sort of radical democracy and with a sort of, you know, class politics. And that is, yeah, I mean, I think, in, but it's even today, I mean, you know, Spain, regions of Spain that were heavily influenced by that movement are, are one of the sort of pr- provide some of the key examples, don't they? Because Barcelona, I mean, Barcelona city government the past few years has been being run by people who really have their roots in that anarcho-syndicalist tradition and been trying to implement similar practices. And and then there's places like, I mean, Rojava is one of the places people will talk about today. You know, the Kurdish territories have all, again, organised along principles, you know, partly inspired by the American kind of green, Greens sort of anarchists think of Murray Bookchin. But in practice, again, what it means is, is this sort of radical participatory democracy. It means everything, everything is organised in terms of sort of you know, democratic structures where everybody has a vote and everybody's accountable to everybody. But is it joyful? Well, people say it is, yeah. I don't know. I've, I mean, Rojava, yeah, they're fighting a war, you know, to some extent. against. They've been fighting a war against yeah, ISIS. It's in the middle of a pretty grinding, horrendous war. Yeah. That makes it unutopic for me. It doesn't make it a utopia for me. If no, well, it's hard for me to imagine it as such. But I think, but people who go there, who were into that sort of thing, they report the same kind of actual feelings as like Orwell is talking about in Homage to Catalonia, don't they? They were this feeling that everything is different because of the way the social relationships are organised. Unless somewhere has like massive canteens in really well organised architectural spaces where loads of people eat together, like it's not like that's like my number one for a yeah. utopia. 
Well, I think they do all eat together in Rojava, but I, but again, but of course, you're right. I mean, that partly touches on the issue of luxury, doesn't it? Because there is a tradition of utopian thinking which thinks that, well, actually, our kind of need for physical luxuries is a sort of symptom of decadence and that in a certain kind of utopia, we just won't need all this stuff, you know. We'll be happy with, you know, simple food, you know, low technology, etc. Et Have either of you come across this book, Bolo Bolo, by uh, PM? no. It's this little, it's this classic, it like from 1983, it's a little book. Um, and it's basically, it's sort of like a, it's a, sort of like a map of a, of a utopia. It's by this guy called, uh, his, he, he chose the name PM, but he's actually called Hans Widemir. I've met the guy. Um, and it's, it's like this, this uh, fantastically practical, but also sort of like crazily detailed model of utopian society. So a bolo is like a community of people, like perhaps 300 people or something like that. Um, and so a bolo bolo is like, you know, a federation of these of these sort of communities. Um, uh, and like, but it's a little bit like that uh, when we talked about the situationist sort of like areas or whatever. So that he's, he thought that like bolos would be created uh, around sort of shared sort of interests in some way. So we had these... He had like a list of possible bolos. So one bolo was a les bolo, <laughs> another one was a play bolo, and one of them was like an alco bolo. But then there were like religious bolos as well. <laughs> so you'd sort of federate, and like each urban bolo would be linked to a rural bolo. Um, and it's sort of like there's just about all work is like freely chosen. And there's no, the thing I always remember about it is there's the, all property is common apart from. Every person has like a box, which is like, I don't know, 100 centimetres by 50 centimetres or something like that. And anything you can fit in that box is your own personal property. Then everything outside of everybody's boxes is communal property, basically. But this guy, Hans, he's actually put this into practice in Switzerland. He had this project called Restart Switzerland. And he's built a couple of sort of these quite large housing co-ops the first one, in fact, was called Craftwork One, which I've always I always like, um, and they're sort of like they're these housing co-ops. We try to model all of the divisions in Swiss society and then try to overcome them, so that there's there's like like age divisions. Young people have to look after the older people in the in the in the sort of co-op. Um, there has to be um, migrants have to be included. Um, so you know you you don't get this thing in housing courts where it's just like the wealthy middle class who are the ones you've got the time to do it, all, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Uh, one of my favourites is a, a quite obscure uh, 70s reggae track by the Nairobi sisters called Promised Land. Which is, I mean, really, it is, I mean, the lyric, uh, you know, is sort of, you know, hardcore, you know, Christian sort of Rasta millenarianism. I mean, they're talking, they say, you know, they say there's going to be, you know, can't remember the exact lyrics now, you know, people, basically people are going to be killed. There's going to be like wailing and gnashing of teeth and stuff when, when we reach the land, as well as it being like a joyous day for the people singing. But then, you know, that is part of the sort of revolutionary imaginary of uh, early 70s you know, Rastafarianism, which is borrowing this biblical language, I mean, really, to imagine revolution uh, and give it a really kind of, you know, arresting sort of beat. What is the sort of actual conceptual status of utopia? So, I mean, it's a Greek term and usually it's translated into meaning no place. And it comes, it does come from a book by sort of Thomas More from the 16th century, which was, it's sometimes called the first science fiction novel in English because it is imagining a kind of future society, which I don't think I don't think it's right. I don't can't remember actually you now if, if it is sort of radically technologically advanced, but it's characterised by different social relationships. It's sort of communal and egalitarian, and and um, I suppose I think it's a sort of actually it's something that we all sort of share, and that probably most people who aren't just strictly anti-utopian would all pretty much sign up to, which is that, well, of course you don't want utopia as a sort of formulated blueprint for what the future society is actually going to be like and you're determined to make that. And of course you don't want to live in a society that thinks it has achieved utopia because that would be sort of Stalinism and, you know, probably, and sort of was Stalinism. 
but, but utopia has a really important imaginative function and then a kind of motivating function as a sort of, you know, either as a sort of what, you know, can't call it or like a regulative ideal, like, you know, you know you're never going to quite reach that, that level, or, or, but you, you strive towards it anyway, or as a sort of horizon, you know, what Jody Dean calls the, the communist horizon. I mean, I like, I mean the, the phrase I always like is it's a direction, not a destination. You know, it's not that you actually think that's the place you're going to get to, but it's the direction you're always going to head in. Just a, a tiny interjection on that. I think that phrase, while it really resonates with me as well, I think that only makes sense to socialists and communists. Like, I think most people will be like, that doesn't, that doesn't make sense about like, it's the journey, not the destination, or maybe Buddhists or whatever. But it's like for most people to be like, but but how like how can we make this work? Like, how does this? Do you know what I mean? Well, I think it sort of. I mean, it speaks to something interesting. There's been this interesting debate since the election. Like, I mean, there's a general sort of consensus that that we've that the the Labour Party and sort of a lot of the intellectual work around the party became too focused on policy. So we had all these kind of interesting policies and not nearly enough sort of strategy, not nearly enough sense of, well, actually, what are the political obstacles to us realising this? And how do we move from just a sort of voluntarism that we just, because we want it enough and there's enough of us knocking on doors, we'll get it. Like, how do we have a more strategic sense? And obviously I sort of endorse a lot of that. And historically I've sort of written bits about how, you know, it's a, you should never think about policy without thinking about strategy. And But also I think it's important that to think about what is the role that, say, policies plays? What is the role that a policy like the four-day week plays? And the role it plays in sort of political thinking and political imagining is it's not... It, it, it is a sort of intermediary thing in between a kind of purely utopian desire for more free time, to society more free time and more freedom and less regulated by work and a purely pragmatic, like, oh, well, what reforms could we do, like, tomorrow that would be achievable? Like, how would we... You know, change national insurance rates by point national insurance rates by point five percent, and put that money into you know some public you know particular demarcated area public services. And the role of policies like that is to sort of is to have this as a function of orienting us in a direction, even though we don't really know exactly like what it would look like in practice to get there, like and what it what it would be, you know, what the actual end state would would definitely be. So I sort of think, I think you're right, Nadia, about how people think about it, but I think it can be that notion of the sort of the sort of transitional imaginary, if you like. You know, I think it can be conveyed to people, can't it? Like, quite. People can imagine things being better, can't they? Mm. Yeah, but there's the whole thing with capitalist realism stuff. Well, no, actually, because we're only talking about... It's, it could also be the capacity issue. You can imagine... I don't know. Well, it is... Nearly that, I mean, it was a big issue. It was an issue at the election, wasn't it? Isn't it? A big issue at the election was people could... Do, they couldn't imagine it, or they couldn't feel like it was actually plausibly possible to realise any of these things. But that's a good point about capacity, because the sort of thing I've been thinking a lot since the election along these lines, actually, is, well, look, there's an argument that people are not stupid. People have a good intuitive sense, actually, of whether a political programme actually has the forces at its disposal to do the things it says it wants to do and it's going to do. And I think people sort of looked at us, a lot of people, and, and probably rightly judged that, well, even if we got into power, we just we didn't have a kind of movement or an assemblage of forces on the kind of scale that would would make it actually possible to, to realise those kinds of objectives. And I think it makes the issue of utopianism really important because you... Without a bit of utopianism, you just can't inspire people. You just can't break past capitalist realism and you just get trapped in it. But then, unless it's sort of... Unless that utopianism is, is sort of animating and animated by a, a project for capacity building, then it does just become utopianism in the bad sense, in the sense of, well, just a statement of what you would ideally like to happen without any kind of sense of how you would get there. There was something else that came up on with the, in Judy's interview... Um, which was her research project. I just thought her, her actual research project was really interesting, um, which is basically you're trying to go and ask people about utopian thinking, uh, ask the t- ask about utopian thinking to the type of people who who basically um, are, are suffering from bad affects or sad affects. So she was like interviewing, asking people about utopian thinking, asking the people who'd come out of job centres, which had been, you know, in job centres, she, she talks about how job centres have 
really um, been designed in order to grind you down and make you feel hopeless, etc. And then to go and ask people about what how they what they thought about utopian hope, etc. Seems like a really interesting thing. Now, in some ways, that's our problem. It's sort of like the one of the problems thrown up by by the election was, um, you know, how do you raise the horizons of people who've been defeated? continuously for 40 years and have had their horizons ground down tremendously do you know what i mean which is one of the stories of the red war we might we might put it that way do you know what i mean uh, how can you make utopianism a viable discourse amongst people who've basically had the hope kicked out of them while i don't like to romanticize the 90s i'm going to romanticize the 90s because at least i had a local library there was less rubbish on the ground like people seemed like they were less like zombies in the street etc so is it that if i'm thinking about like in a really localized level like what are the things that would make my living my actual lived environment more utopic or like what are the things that I would imagine in a utopia? If I'm thinking things like libraries, like basically, do you think about libraries if you've got libraries? But, but if you've got libraries, the utopia in relation to libraries is to think, how could we get this form of of organisation and expand it to more than books? Do you know what I mean? I like, which is what the sharing economy was supposed to be before it got, you know, basically turned into the renting economy, which is what we... We actually have do you know what i mean so it's the question is like perhaps if you have robust libraries that are used does it make it easier to imagine those forms of relationships you know extending to other sorts of you know to, to more of life i don't know yeah i mean it is i mean for me personally i would say to be honest it was specifically libraries that made me a sort of left social democrat even though i've always been you know as a, as a trotskyist friend told me in like 1990 you know or theoretically an anarchist you know, but made me sort of a left social democrat because my experience of libraries was just this is just amazing. Like even you know during the period of Thatcherism when it felt like civilization itself was being assaulted by this evil force, there were still libraries that you could just go into the library and find a book and anything you want. And if they didn't have it, you could ask them to get it for you, and it would come and you would read it. And I just thought this is fantastic. I mean, to me, it just seemed amazing, and or, and it seemed like well, clearly this works. So the idea that this, you can't have any any form of state or government that is evil clearly isn't true. So on some level, so it, and it so yeah, it, it was extrapolating from that precisely and thinking well, more things could be like this. Actually, I did. Uh, you know, when my kids used to go to Woodcroft, like the sort of. <laughs> youth wing of the cooperative movement once i organized a session where we took the group we took the kids to waterstones and then we took them to the library and we talked about the difference between like a shop where you, where you have to pay for stuff and the books where every all the books belong to everybody well the waterstones is the best is 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 quite good though in terms of like the lighting and stuff so there's certain things about waterstones which are different to different bookshops which make you like them which might be a little bit cynical but, you know, I've been in libraries where I'm like, wow, the atmosphere is amazing. And I've been in libraries where I'm like, oh, my God, this is quite shit. That's a good point. I mean, you know, I mean, but that's, you know, that's that's the cl the classic Marxist point is that capitalism is good at generating a lot of those things. And they, they need to be appropriated at certain points in the process of development. I've got to admit, books, books are the, one of the, uh, are the commodity I fetish more than anything else. I find it, <laughs> they're giving up giving up my library would be like you know the test of my my library of all my little books all my little squiggles and marks on it would be <laughs> i mean you'd be you're talking about your personal my personal now, library yeah not my library yeah <laughs> not anybody rather else's library. library i'd need a massive um, one of those massive fuck off boxes much bigger than 100 centimeters by 50 centimeters to cram my books into the, the, that's the real test of my uh socialist uh yeah, ethics. yeah, where you're just like, have everything except uh, except my book. But obviously, like, books are completely redundant technologies. I can, obviously, everybody can have my books if they're, if they're turned into, you know, zeros and ones, which are, they all are on the internet somewhere. Why you know redundant I mean? technology? What does this mean? Well, I mean, they're not redundant because they, they're great, but... But basically, all of the information in those books I can see on my shelf over there, they probably are already freely available to borrow for nothing on the internet somewhere in some corner of the internet. Or at least they could totally That's be. That's like saying, why have a wife when I can have a sex doll? 
that's kind of like, <laughs> like that's, is, that's what yeah, a Kindle is. That's what a Kindle is to like the, I, yeah, sorry, I'm quite militant about this. It's like human being sex doll. Okay. I mean, I'm not precious about the institution of marriage, but I think you may be I'm not either. That's right. That's right. Actually, I take it back. I'm not precious about. But basically, yeah, like, you know, some people can do can do like Kindles and stuff. It's like, no, no, no. I completely hear you about books with squiggles and dog-eared and that you've lent out and you've you've looked for and forgotten about and then got back and whatever. But I would say, I would say that is, a te- that is an issue of technology. I mean, I used to think before Kindles were invented, actually, I thought we were heading towards a situation in which everybody would just have printers at home that, we could, that could print whole books and bind them for them. I mean, that would be achievable. You'd need a massive recycling programme and a massive reforestation programme to grow enough trees to make enough paper. But... I would say that's an example of something that could happen. I've always said the same thing about, you know, digitised and analogue music. Like, there's an alternative future in which, you know, instead of all music having to be digitised for everybody to get access to it, like, everybody's got a... Everybody's got, like, a... Everybody's got a really good hi-fi at home and, and every neighbourhood has a kind of, you know, a pressing plant that can make dub plates of vinyl of anything you want, you know, towards... Brilliant! It. This is good, this is good. This is what I want to hear... I want to hear about people's utopia. So, so definitely in my utopia, I will definitely have some of my own books. I mean, no one's taking Kia's books away from him, clearly. And they're not <laughs> taking mine either. But there are other things that are like, I, that I think, that there's lots of stuff that I would want communized. Like, I absolutely love the idea of there being like public places where you can go and, you know, get your vinyl or, you know, it doesn't have to, or whatever, where you get your, where you listen together, like we did had at the World Transformed, like listening sessions where you can, places where you can go and listen to music together, like stuff like that, in terms of like the senses is, is like really central. We're talking about analogue utopias here, aren't we? That's distinct from digital utopias. And And basically the digital utopia that we've, that we're now living in, which we are to an extent, you know, I'm here, I'm here in the States, you know, at the moment, you know, being a visiting professor at Brown and basically the whole visit would be, have been totally just unthinkable for me 20 years ago because I can talk to the kids on, you know, like FaceTime and Skype every day. I, I can do this with you guys and, and I didn't need to schlep like 500 books over in a, in a crate because they're all digitised. So we are living to some extent, if, if we, especially if we're in a, in a position of wealth and privilege, in this sort of digital utopia. But that digital utopia was produced by foreclosing the sort of analogue utopia, which would only have been achievable if we had continued to extend and radicalise social democracy from the 70s onwards. And so it is, it is the sense this digital utopia you know, is, again, it's the substitute we've been given for the possible future like we could have had, you know. Um, where we could actually be free on the streets. Yes, yeah. and, where, and, and where, you know, we, we, didn't, we don't have to use, try and fumble around with a Kindle because we've got the publicly owned, you know, ecologically sustainable printing workshops in every, you know, neighbourhood. Big Rock Candy Mountain, song my dad used to sing to me as a lullaby. Tell us about it, Keir. Uh, well, it's, it's uh, late 20s, um, and it's sort of like, a, it's from a sort of like hobo imaginary, right? Um, it's recorded by uh, Harry McClintock in 1928, actually. It's got that got lines in it, like uh, in Big, Big Rock Candy Mountain, all of the... Uh, the dogs the dogs have have, have um, rubber teeth is one of the ones they talk about the yeah. dogs that are chasing them off one of the things that really re- that um, I loved though was it, it goes you know in Big Rock Candy Mountain um, there's there's be lemonade springs right and like that's one of the things that came up when we did a workshop on at the, at the World Transform we did this workshop where we were trying to get people to pretend that they were joy consultants how would they change a city and one of the things people came up with was um I think they came up with lem- pink lemonade fountains. It's pink peach iced tea, peach wasn't it? Tea, peach yes, iced okay. tea fountains. <laughs> close enough to lemonade springs. You know, it is. It's very close. And then they've got this great line about, um, uh, we'd kill the Turk who invented work. <laughs> so it's that, that, that it's a particular form of, like, you know, a utopian vision, but, but, but rooted in a particular lifestyle. One evening as the sun went down and the jungle fire was burning... Down the track came a hobo hiking And he said, boys, I'm not turning I'm headed for a land that's far away Beside the crystal fountains So come with me, we'll go and see The big rock candy mountains 
in the big rock candy mountains there's a land that's there well, he was, I mean, he was a lifelong member of the industrial workers of the world, you know, the, the so-called Wobblies, McClintock. And it was, a, it was a wobbly anthem. I mean, it was just, it is just on the surface. It's just, well, not actually, no, it's not. If you go into the, all the lyrics like you just did, it's obviously politicised. But, you know, it's, it's, it's a hobo. It's, an, it's a nice little ditty dreaming of a kind of imaginary sort of perfect environment. But it is, you know, he was... I mean, the hope, the idea of the hobo as a potentially radical figure was important to the industrial workers of the world, who were the, the great American syndicalist union of the early 20th century and still one of the great sort of reference points. Uh, anyone listening who doesn't know about the IWW, check out the Working Class History podcast because they're obsessed with it. They've uh, Basically everything that can be known, I think, about the IWW, they've done episodes about uh, and done it really, really well. Utopia. 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 Planet of your wildest dreams. Where everybody drives a Cadillac car. And the streets are paved with hamburgers. Utopia. Where all your needs are catered for. Anticipated, calculated. You know, Freud has this famous phrase, his great phrase, kettle logic. And he's, he's referring to a, situ- a scene in which somebody says to somebody, um, somebody borrows a kettle from someone and they damage the kettle. And then, but they don't want to take responsibility for damaging the kettle. So they say, oh, I never borrowed your kettle. It was like that, but it was like that when I got it and uh, it wasn't my fault. I, it's not me who damaged it. So people say, oh, the, th- the trouble with uh, utopianism is it, uh, it's trivial uh, but it, and, it's impossi- and it's impossible, impossibilist, but it's also dangerous. So, like, it's all three at the same time. Like, it's, it's dangerous because it leads to totalitarianism, but it's also silly uh, and it also it would be uh, impossible anyway. Yeah, and that it's accepted that even though it's illogical, that, has a, that, lo- that illogical logic... It pertains. Yeah, and that sort of, uh, I mean, on a certain level, anti-utopianism is the defining characteristic of the whole conservative tradition. I mean, modern conservatism begins with Edmund Burke saying, the French Revolution is definitely going to lead to a disaster because any attempt, because all of this kind of attempt to create an ideal society from scratch, like it's definitely can only lead to totalitarianism. And that, you know, you can, the only stuff that works is stuff that's tried and true and traditional. And if you want to change things, you can only ever do so incrementally in a way which doesn't try to fundamentally change what's gone before. And that is, that is an... And, and, and he's not even talking about socialists. He's talking about radical liberals, you know, the people who make the French and American revolutions. Uh, but but anti-utopianism is just... You, it is fundamental to the sort of conservative imaginary, actually. Um, and then it becomes, you know, anti-utopianism becomes part... I mean, there's a version of the reaction to kind of 1968, you know, and its aftermath from the counterculture, like in, in France and other places. Again, there's this version of it which, you know, it feeds into sort of certain strands of postmodernism in the 80s. It feeds in, and it feeds into, I would say, the kind of intellectual milieu which gives rise to sort of hegemonic neoliberalism in the 90s, which is just ideologically committed to the idea that basically any attempt to address social problems systematically, any attempt to prosecute a politics that's you know, animated by utopian desires and utopian sensations is just inherently wrong. It will, all, it, it was either will lead to totalitarianism or it will fail. You know, it will fail, and if it, even if it didn't fail, it would be bad that it succeeded. So, and that's one of the re- and that really does, you know, it's fed into our sort of political mainstream to the extent that you know. It's, you know, in a way that really is... I mean, that is the sort of condition of possibility for capitalist realism, actually. I mean, that's what... I mean, capitalist realism is is one name for a condition under which utopian thinking has been simply driven out of... Any form of utopian thinking has been driven out of, of, of political discourse and imagination, isn't it? Yeah. 
It's a great irony, isn't it? Is that um, the Bla- the great Blairite anthem was "Things Can Only Get Better." <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but also that's partly it's part it's partly not an irony because that was their whole thing. The thing is, only things can only get better. So you don't uh, have yeah, to yeah, have yeah, a big yeah, vision. Exactly, yeah. You don't have to have a big vision because you just have to. Any change of government is going to be a slight improvement. You know, because things are so fucked now. So, and they were, you know, they were sort of, um, you know, that they they were really, I mean, and the 90s Blairites were really proud of their kind of anti-utopianism. There's an interesting question, actually, as to whether neoliberalism has, whether it is utopian, because you can make an argument, yeah. I mean, one, one way I always say neoliberalism is totally utopian on its own terms is, basically, neoliberalism claims you can create a society which is highly unequal, but which has really high levels of social mobility. You know, if you dig into what they claim they're going to create, it's always that. They say, yeah, we're fine with inequality, but we're going to give everyone an equal chance to succeed. And, and um, you know, every we'll have, you know, very, you know, rewards will be distributed on the basis of your success or failure as an entrepreneur. But it, that's totally never happened. Like, there's never been a society ever in which inequality increased and social mobility increased. And in, in fact, social mobility is just a myth. There's no such thing as social mobility. There's either inequality or equality. And the more inequality you have, the less people are managed to travel between one social class and another. So on that, on those terms, neoliberalism is itself sort of totally is itself a sort of is a failed utopianism. It is a sort of failed utopian. Well, it, also has a, it also has an ideal concept of what a human being should be like, basically, which is like, you know, entrepreneurial version of of Homo economicus. It has a model that you have to measure 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 people up up against, and if they fail, then they should be disincentivized, etc. So it is it is in some ways a utopianism. One of the things we wanted to talk about was, well, what's the relationship between projects which are just trying to create a kind of discrete, you know, social space, like a, a town, a community, a commune, or what have you? What's the relation to the, between that and kind of, you know, properly anti-systemic politics? And, you know, the, the pro, I mean, historically, I mean, we used the phrase enclave, um, didn't we? We were talking about... Um, talking about this earlier and actually like i mean the idea of the enclave it it is a powerful idea in utopian thinking you know the historical critique is always well look if you just if you just try to create your little bit of heaven your little bit of paradise without ultimately challenging you know the systemic power of the capitalist class or the state agencies that are beholden to them or what have you then you'll either get swallowed up or it's sort of even worse. You know, you sort of become, you become part of the problem. You become part of the general structure that sustains it. I mean, I remember the first time I went to, as an adult anyway, I went to San Francisco, like the early 2000s. You know, it was before San Francisco had become totally colonised now by the tech industry. And it was sort of really amazing in the way that everybody always said it was. You know, it was this incredible bohemian centre. And, and there was all kinds of, you know, community activism going on from a very libertarian left point of view. And there was, you know, sort of, it was the world capital of psychedelic culture. And everybody there was unbearably smug. Like, absolutely everyone I met, like, wanted me to congratulate them on how clever they were of having moved to the best place in the world. But I remember coming away from it after a week thinking, well, if you were going to save America, you'd have to destroy this place. Because this place just, it acts as this this kind of big enclave. It's just this, it's this place where America has allowed, like, all of it, the kind of most ambitious dissenters from mainstream American norms to go and live. And they sit there kind of generating ideas and creativity, which it was already clear at that point was important to Silicon Valley, having them there to kind of suck up, their, you know, sort of parasitise a lot of their ideas and innovations. And... But for other people in America, for the people who don't get to go live there, that's sort of part of the problem because all the people who should be kind of, you know, progressive and radical in their communities, they all want to go live there instead. 
I mean, I don't know if that's a true model. I'm not saying that was like a correct analysis, you know, probably had something to it. But it's just illustrating the fact that, you know, Raymond Williams has this, you know, analytical distinction between alternative cultures and oppositional cultures. Like alternative cultures just want to create some space for themselves and, and oppositional ones want to actually engage in direct confrontation with established forms of power. And I guess... I mean, the, the historic critique of, of utopianism by people like Marx is that, well, actually, you know, you just end up, you end up hiding in your enclave and defending your enclave, like, rather than actually confronting wider structures of power. But isn't it an experiment in itself about whether you are able to set up an enclave yes. and yes. how far you yes. can go, right? Yeah, you're right. They're laboratories, they're experiments, they're experiments and you, you learn from them. And that learning, like, contributes to the sort of wider movement. This, this idea of an enclave is something that Frederick Jameson talks about his big book on utopias I can't remember the name of and like you know he's talking about sort of like perhaps even just moments or like areas which which sort of operate under a different logic to the logic we're in all the time and perhaps even to a different temporality right um uh, and because and because when, when I was reading it I I thought about the my experiences of going to to festivals particularly free festivals in an, in the like late 1980s which then turned into sort of like you know outdoor raves etc but just because they were run under a completely different, especially the free festivals, they were run under a completely different logic. And I did find it mind-blowing, you know, coming from uh, the Welsh Valleys. You know what I mean? It was that it was the ability to be in a different place where you step outside it and then be able to look a little bit more about, uh, like, you know, the constrictions on your life. Yeah, something something like that. But I also I think you could... Well, I, I heard um, Will Davis doing an interview recently uh, where he talked about... Um, you know, enclaves, you could have enclaves in a sort of like Jamesonian sort of sense, uh, uh, which would give us some sort of relief from the sort of stress and pressures of of uh, contemporary sort of like social media life. Do you know what I mean? Uh, which is his... But would you be able to construct them? Like, this is the qu- key question. Like, are you, is it is going to be allowed, are you allowed to... Well, I mean, yeah, When if you look at the history of festivals, no, <laughs> they got closed down uh, as soon as they got to a certain level. Um but I just think it's interesting, like, because it takes us back to that idea: what is the role of these utopias, and what are the role of these sort of enclaves? Like, are they compensatory mechanisms helping us just cope with the stresses of contemporary life? Do they have more radical potential? I mean, obviously, it probably depends. They're probably the answer to that depends on the the sort of like things that surround them, whether there's you know strong movements and, and and political projects which they could fit into or not. You know, absent those, and they can basically only be compensatory, perhaps. I think. But there's at least three functions they can have, isn't it? That one is that they're just compensation. They just and they just help sustain the system by offering people a sort of safety valve and a way of coping with an, an otherwise intolerable situation. And uh, the fear, you know, when you're doing anything like putting on regular parties, you know, the fear is always that that's what that's the function for me. The function they'll end up serving for too many people. A ritual of license. Yeah, exactly. A ritual of license, and basically a thing that just enables them to keep doing their kind of shitty job and living in a shitty place without challenge and not bother challenging its shittiness because they, they, at least they have fun at the weekend. So that, that's a danger. But that's only one function. The other, fu- I mean, the ideal function is that they become kind of actually assembled into a kind of broader assemblage with a political movement where, you know, even if you're not, you know, doing radical didacticism on the dance floor, people have a quite intentional sense that they're participating in this space as part of participating in some wider movement, which is sort of oppositional in nature. And then there's a kind of, there's a sort of space in between that where, I mean, basically, they are basically therapeutic, but they're therapeutic for people who are in struggle and are consciously in struggle. So, which I would say, to be honest, that is, I think that is, that's like with our, with my parties, that is their main function. Like I don't, at their best, at certain moments, they have seemed to be, you know, they've sort of resonated enough with political developments that they help to amplify them.
I thought I'd mention again this. I think it's a, it's a record from a couple of years ago, and I think it's genuinely my favourite record of the past like 30 years. It's an album by an American jazz musician called Noel Brass Jr. called Broken Cloud Orchestra, which is doing, it's a sort of mixture of like jazz and sort of ambient electronics. I remember in the early 90s when there was that big wave of sort of um, interest in ambient music because people were playing it in chill-out rooms at clubs and raves. I remember saying to someone that the uh, the ideal title for an ambient compilation should be Music for After the Revolution. And, um, and for me, that kind of music, it does have this kind of, you know, it, it, it's just really, really pleasant to listen to, but also it's very kind of virtuosic and very sort of engrossing. And it's also very future, you know, deliberately sort of futuristic in its use of kind of electronics and its mixture of electronics with acoustics. To me, that is a real musical manifestation of a certain kind of utopianism, a utopian spirit, because it is, you know, there's nothing kind of harsh or angular about it. And yet it's, and yet, and it does sort of put you in an affective state, which is, you know, a sort of utopian one, but it's also, you know, sort of future-oriented and open and kind of porous. podcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. You can find more podcasts as well as video interviews and articles at our website, navaramedia.com. And you can subscribe to our podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Navarra Media. We're not funded by advertisers or wealthy backers, but rely on our subscribers. We ask for just one hour of your wage a month to keep us going. You can sign up at support.navaramedia.com and give us just one hour of your wage a month. So we can keep working round the clock. That's support.navaramedia.com.